Hello and welcome to the Speaking Out podcast from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our goal is to highlight our programs and the amazing work that they're doing around the state, provide discussion around the topics of domestic violence, and create an environment of education and empowerment for anyone that may be experiencing domestic violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And this month, we're highlighting our staff members here at the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. This episode, we have on Teresa Garcia, our Director of Training. Thank you for joining me today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do here at NMCADV? Yes, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My name is Teresa Garcia, and I'm the director of training here at the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And when did you start working with us? And is the position that you have now different from what you had when you started? <laughs> That's a funny question. Yes. And I giggle, right? Because of the number of titles that I've had at the coalition. So I did start in December 2019. And when I initially started, I was the education and outreach coordinator. So I was supposed to be going out at the time to educate our community, do presentations and engage our community. And then COVID hit right shortly after February, you know, 2020. And then after that, I became the education training and outreach coordinator. And so I started taking over the training, supporting the coalition to switch from in-person to Zoom due to the pandemic. We did have some transition in staff during that time as well, where I do love to point this out, where Shauna, who is now our program support specialist, which I'm sure you're going to meet her during these podcasts, she was actually my supervisor. And so I worked with her and then she transitioned out as well as our other colleague, Caitlin, and I took over the trainings for the coalition. And then I also then took over the communications for the coalition. I think I might've gotten the roles reversed, but then I was, you know, the training communications person, training and communications director, rather for the New Mexico Coalition of Domestic Violence and did the communications for the coalition, including membership at some point in between there as well. So I held pretty much a lot of those positions um, and engaging membership, communication, social media, you name it, I did it. Where now I have landed in a position that I love, which is the training director for the coalition. I really do still have some of those similar aspects with my position and engaging the community, which is something I absolutely adore. And that is super important here in New Mexico, training our advocates and our community and still doing some sort of outreach, right? Because um, people are interested in the trainings that we do hold here at the coalition and then just now working collaboratively with my colleagues, but I really do love what I do now in helping facilitate trainings that are needed within our state and that are required or are suggested. So it really makes me happy to fit those needs within our community. So what do you think is one of the most important aspects of your job? I think one of the most important aspects of my job is (laughs) providing trainings. And the reason I love my job, and I had mentioned it already, is, you know, educating our community about domestic violence. There has always been a stigma or it's been a taboo topic. And it's been really important to me when I got into this position or started working for the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence to really educate our community on what domestic violence is and the different aspects about DV and how to really educate our community on how to recognize it, how to support survivors. 
And so training and education, I think, is so important. And just engaging our community as well. You know, that education for our community is really, really important. So, yeah, I think that's (laughs) something super important. It really is. So where did you start your career in domestic violence? Were you in this line of work before this position? No, actually, I was not in the domestic violence field. I actually was in the pharmaceutical field for 10 years. And I graduated from UNM with my biology and chemistry degree. And yeah, I was in every aspect of pharmacy. And I'm actually a survivor of domestic violence. And so when I was going through my own situation, I learned that there was a lot of barriers for survivors of domestic violence. And so I began advocating within our community and really going out to meet people. And I connected with people from the Chamber of Commerce. I started going to events. I started meeting representatives, those that are in the legislature. I started also volunteering for Safe House, doing a lot of events to raise funds for our organizations, which were local. And just, again, really having those really hard conversations on why is this happening to me? And if it's happening to me, then it must be happening to somebody else. And so I really tried to raise awareness. And one day I got an email from the coalition looking for an education and outreach coordinator. And I was like, I can do that. And yeah, I applied for it. I got an interview. And the next day I got the the offer and I said, yes. And so then I started working with the coalition ever since, and I'm not looking back to pharmacy for sure. Well, we're very happy to have you here as you are now. The pharmacy field can just deal without you. (laughs) I still miss it though. I love, I miss the customer service aspect of it. And I think that that really has helped me with the job that I have now. So I am grateful for that. What is something that you're really proud of or excited about that we're doing right now at the coalition? Well, as you know, our team has expanded, right? So it's not just me. We have Ida, we have Shauna, and our team is growing. And so that's something that really makes me excited because it gives us the opportunity to really expand, right? Our trainings were growing and we are going national. We are having a lot more trainings than we have ever had, you know, before. And so having that expertise of my other colleagues really makes me excited because we are able to now go back in person now that the pandemic is kind of sort of over, right? We still have some restrictions. But the beauty of it is that we are able to now go out and educate people where before it was entirely on Zoom. And so people can reach out to us and let us know if there's a topic in particular that your business or your organization or your advocates might be interested in. And we can then collaborate with our training team to see who would be the person to be able to fit those needs. And then they could either travel or do a training on Zoom, whichever might work for the organization as well. But what really makes me excited is that we're going out and we are getting more requests for training and trainings are growing. And people in our community are really recognizing, you know, the trainings that we are giving out, you know, they're, they're really something that they're interested in and excited about. And so, yeah, that makes me excited to know that the community is really engaging with the coalition. What part of your work are you most passionate about? I think the part of my work that I'm most passionate about is serving our advocates and their needs and our programs, but also New Mexico has a way where relationships are super important. And so that really makes me excited where, as I mentioned, we do serve the community and really have done our work to really reach out. And so it really makes me excited that our community is engaging with us and for us to engage with them and build that relationship and collaborate. 
And that's something that I have always felt that it's been, it's really important, right, to have those relationships. And I feel that with the trainings and how we've been growing has given me the opportunity to collaborate with those in the community and really engage with them and also build the relationship with those in our community. It might be senators, legislators, commissioners, city council. I mean, we are just really grateful for their support. Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales, the governor. I mean, it's just really building those relationships. And I'm really grateful that we have built those relationships and we do have really great relationships with them. So that's something that really makes me really passionate because the more that you have relationships with your community, the more that you can support them and vice versa and have those difficult conversations to support each other. So if you could make one change for survivors in New Mexico, what would it be? Oh, gosh, that's a really hard question, because if I could change, I would change all of it. So many things that I would change if I could have it my way. I think one of the biggest questions that comes when we talk about domestic violence and survivors, as you know, is why doesn't she leave, right? And so I think it's really important. One of the things that I would change is really changing that narrative. And you've heard me talk about this several times, Rochelle, where, you know, a lot of people do ask the question of why didn't she leave? But really the question should be why, you know, is he doing this and really changing that accountability and that narrative. And also the victim shaming, I think is a huge part in our community or outside everywhere nationally, you know, that victim shaming is something that I wish could change. So survivors could get the support that they need and the validation for what's happened to them, instead of having to prove everything and then results, you know, with with nothing sometimes. So that's something that I would change is just changing the narrative and, you know, the victim shaming. Another thing that I would change also is having legal services available for survivors without having to pay an arm and a leg or working two to three jobs or not having the means to, I think having legal services and a representative to support them and represent them, right? Them and their children, because that is a huge barrier that I see with survivors is that they are experiencing a very traumatic experience and it can be very overwhelming. I have lived it. It's very overwhelming taking time off of work, not being able to afford the legal representative or the legal advocate, and then sometimes having to represent ourselves where sometimes we're not legally well-versed in the legal field. And so we can't represent ourselves properly. And so that's something else that I would change is that survivors are given a free, no cost legal service to represent them in court and have an advocate with them to support them through that process, because it can still be traumatic during it. But at least that stress of having to work multiple jobs, not being able to afford it is taken away where they can then focus on taking better care of their children, you know, making ends meet without having to worry about anything else, you know, just knowing that they're going to be well taken care of in the system. Yeah, I know you're not the first person to say that. If you could make one change for our programs in New Mexico, what would it be? That they have what they need. Our programs are fantastic. They serve so many survivors and their families. And I wish that they could have, you know, the funds, the resources and everything that they need. A lot of our shelters across, you know, the state of New Mexico are small. Some of them need renovations. They do serve quite a bit of survivors. And so making sure that they have, you know, the resources, like when a survivor comes into the, to the program or seeking shelter, 
they do need a, a place to live. They, they do need, you know, clothes, they do need toiletries, just a number of things, you know, clothes for their children, shoes, and things like that. So that is something that I would change in that our programs have what they need to not only provide the, the services, but also that the survivors have what they also need when they're seeking those services, because it can be a really life-changing experience for a survivor. And we have Safe House here in, in Albuquerque. It's one of the larger, largest shelters in New Mexico. And so Patricia there has done a lot of fantastic work in renovating her shelter and fitting the needs of survivors and their children and making sure that they have, you know, the room and the space and the children also have a playroom. And so there's a lot that goes into the, these programs to offer what they need to support survivors. And so that is something that I would change is that they can have like the most updated things. They can have all of the resources. They can have everything that they need to support survivors. And even like during the pandemic, right, shelters had to close. They weren't able to allow anybody in or they had to have, you know, the COVID testing. And then there was an influx of families coming in. And so we had to ask if we could get funds for placing them in hotel rooms. And so they are extremely resilient in coming up with ideas like that and placing them in hotels, finding transitional housing, what else can they do and making that work. And they did that. They did that for a lot of survivors during the pandemic. And so absolutely that they're very resilient. You know, they can definitely make a flower grow out of concrete because they're just, they need to do what they need to do in order to support survivors and their families. So that's, I really appreciate them for that. And, you know, their resiliency. So October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And because of that, I wanted to ask our staff if they could choose one aspect of awareness to highlight, what would it be and why? I think one aspect of awareness that I would like to highlight for New Mexico is that, you know, a couple years ago, I did an interview with our executive director, Pam Wiseman, and she had mentioned that, you know, the conviction rate here in New Mexico is extremely low. I think she, she mentioned it was about 8%. And I was in awe that I could not believe that. I mean, my own experience, you know, again, there was no conviction, there was a lot of revolving door. And so I think that that's something that I would like to raise awareness to is that the conviction rate is extremely low. And again, that's where I guess I'm so passionate about training to educate people on the different forms of domestic violence to really recognize that right and start educating our community. And we do have this new program that we are it's in process right now. And we are hiring for that position, which is the coordinated community response position. And so that person is basically connecting our lawyers, our police officers, our judges, all of those, you know, systemic systems with our advocates and our programs to really see and talk about what's going on in our communities. And I think that that's really important to see if we can really change that percentage and not be so low where 8% is to me insane there should be more convictions and it should not be a revolving door or whatever, however term you want to, to refer it to. But I feel that those have, that have committed a crime should be held accountable. And, you know, that's where education really comes in. And maybe that is something that we need within our communities that more, more education to recognize all of those signs. What happens when you go to court and, you know, the survivor has a traumatic brain injury and maybe that is why she is acting the way that she is because of what she's experiencing. That trauma is heightened, right? Being in that position and then not having an attorney, 
and not being able to represent themselves in the way that a judge would prefer. And then, you know, the offender is calm and, you know, there's just a lot of aspects that go into it that we really do need to recognize all of these different things that are affecting the survivor and what is resulting in that low percentage of a conviction rate, right? And then there's also the fear of survivors as well coming forward. The most dangerous time for a survivor is when they decide to leave. That is the most dangerous time. So that's another awareness highlight that I would also like to include because, you know, once they leave, that's where they see all of these barriers. They don't know where to go. And then the offender is looking for them, might be stalking them, might be breaking that restraining order if they did one. I mean, once the the offender finds out that they're doing all of these, it just heightens. And so it's very dangerous for the survivor. And when the survivor tells us, you know, that, I'm scared or he's going to kill me or he's going to come after my children. We need to believe them because they are the experts in knowing who the offender is and what he's like or she's like, because again, this happens across the board. So it's really recognizing that and listening to them and offering the support that they need. But yeah, I think that conviction rate is something that we are always working on. We are doing the best that we can. Our programs are doing the best that we can. Our community is doing the best that we can. So how do we bridge that gap or merge at least that bridge, right? And really start communicating and working together to address, you know, what is going on and how can we fix it as a team, which is Team New Mexico, really, and collaborate with each other to really serve survivors and their families within the state of New Mexico. There is nobody at fault. And I think that, you know, it's just, we just need to talk and, and work together and really strengthen our relationships with each other in order to make that happen. And it, it all starts with the conversation, right? And so we're hoping with this community coordinated response, and with the work that we're doing at the coalition, we can really start that conversation and address, you know, what's been happening to really get those results going and bring justice to those that need justice and validate survivors and what they're going through. Again, the conviction rate is something that I would definitely highlight as an awareness topic. And Also, the most dangerous time for a survivor is when they decide to leave. So I was just thinking as you were talking, for the people at home who might not understand what you mean by conviction rate, can you tell us what what that means? So let's say that someone, someone has abused somebody else. Where is the system breaking down? At what point do we get to that really low conviction rate? What what is happening up until that point? Well, it could be a number of things, right? So as I mentioned earlier, when a person is a victim of a crime, they can decide to go, you know, make a police report if somebody calls 911 or if they call 911. When the police arrive, the police can offer the survivor, you know, to make a police report, an emergency police report, an emergency restraining order. They can offer them a number of services. So it could start from there, right? Like maybe the the officer didn't think that they needed to provide them with an emergency restraining order document for them to fill out and take. It could also mean that maybe the survivor was, again, fearful of doing the restraining order because if she does the restraining order or he does the restraining order, then it'll result in a dangerous situation for them and their family. So it could stop there, right? But the police report was filed. And then another thing that could happen is that they go to court, the police officer doesn't show up or does show up, and then the judge doesn't call on them. That's another scenario that could possibly happen to where then there is no evidence to suggest that there was abuse of some form. 
or the judge could simply just in my case, right? When I filed my restraining order, I had a number of restraining orders that I renewed, but when the offender kept breaking that restraining order, I would go to court and they just told him I had no proof and that the police report wasn't enough and that he should just abide by the restraining order. So it was kind of like a slap on the hand. So nothing really was done. So he wasn't ordered to go to the 52 offender week program that we have in New Mexico. He was ordered to do counseling. He never did counseling, but he was never convicted to where he went to jail for it. They kept trying to just say, well, this isn't enough or this is enough or whatnot. And so that is not a conviction, right? So he was not convicted of his crime. Yes. Does he have a restraining order and, you know, in his history and whatnot? Yes. But there was no conviction in resulting in jail or time or anything like that. It's, it's, it's really a number of things. And it also could be that even if the survivor does file that restraining order, does go through it and meet with wherever they may need to, like the DA's office. And then the day of the, the court hearing, she doesn't show up because she's scared. It might be that that's also resulting in a non-conviction, right? He's there and she's not, or he can also not show up, right? Even though they give those court orders that if you don't go, you'll be held in contempt, but sometimes they still don't show up. And so that's another, so there's really a number of things that can happen. And also that, you know, unfortunately there is an influx of survivors. There's a lot of DA and paralegals. If it does go to that level where there is also a lot of turnover, right? With police officers, there's still a lot of turnover with DAs. And so that also can affect the case where it reduces the, the conviction rate. So again, I, I can keep going on and on and on with all of these examples, but really there's a lot of things that can really impact that 8%. So it's not really about what people are doing and, or not doing. It's just how do we really address the, the process, right? And make sure that the survivor is supported during that process and that we're doing everything we can to support them during that process. So my last question is just meant to be kind of a fun one. That's what I ask everybody at the end. You know, here at the coalition, we have three hours of wellness per week. And so it is, you know, it's a value that we have as a workplace, but also like in the line of work that we do, it's essential. So what kinds of things do you do to take care of yourself? For me, taking care of myself and the way that I take care of myself is... I really like working with my hands. And so it could be doing backyard work. It could be refinishing furniture. That's something that I really do love to, to do is find furniture that I can refinish and make beautiful again. I also really love working on vehicles on my cars. And so I'm very, <laughs> very savvy with mechanical work. And so I really do also enjoy doing that and going to the gym. So as long as I'm active and you know using my hands or fixing something that that is something that I really do enjoy and see that as taking care of myself and just enjoying what I'm doing at that time um, and making myself happy. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And as you know, I'm always nervous to talk about myself or being an interview, but this was a lot of fun and being able to talk about what we're doing on the training team here at the coalition and really highlight what we're doing in our community so I thank you for just having this podcast. Really, it's been really amazing for us at NMCADV and our programs to highlight our advocates, not only staff, but our advocates, our programs and everything that's happening in our community and really sharing it widely. I think that this is a huge and important aspect of our work. 
and really getting that information out. And hopefully somebody out there is hearing all of this and just really seeing how amazing we are or our programs are rather here in New Mexico. So thank you. We want to thank our programs that work tirelessly across the state to support those affected by domestic violence. Each and every staff member, advocate, therapist, and supporter is important. We appreciate you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. Please call the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website on a safe device at www.thehotline.org. Love our conversations? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can submit questions and feedback to rochelle at nmcadv.org. Thanks for listening in.